your Bibles uh, to the book of Mark. I want to say this too, it's my son-in-law's birthday today. Matt, it's Matt's birthday. I want you all to know, I have never said that before in my life. I have never, ever said those words. It's my son-in-law's birthday. Wow. And it's Debbie Silky's birthday today, too. Wow. Happy birthday to Debbie and happy birthday to Matthew. Who else has a birthday today? Anybody else? Tomorrow? James Keene has a birthday today. Oh, next month? This month. Well, happy birthday. Huh? Mike was yesterday. Wow. Well, I think we should just sing happy birthday to all these birthday people. How about that? (laughs) Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. God bless you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to all. Amen. (laughs) Oh, God is good. All right, today we're going we're gonna to talk about offenses today. Uh, last week we talked about uh, murmuring, and we've been, uh, we've been in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, last week we looked at Numbers 11, uh, and we've been anywhere from Numbers 11, 12, 13, 14, and it's the account of the children of Israel as they were uh, leaving Sinai and going to the Promised Land. This is prior to... Uh, their 40 years, this was at the beginning of their 40-year wandering. This was leading up to the time when they would uh, go into the promised land, spy out the land, and then come back with an evil report. And as a result of that, God said, you'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And specifically, we, we looked at uh, the murmuring and complaining of the children of Israel and, and what God said about that. And the two really important things that God said about that. Number one is he said that that murmuring and complaining uh, was a sign that you despised the Lord. And the other thing was, is their murmuring, complaining, God said, came from an, uh, a heart that lacked faith, uh, an unfaithful heart. And we don't often think of these things in that way. You know, and I, uh, one of the things I did last week, you know, just to kind of give you a recap here, but it's important uh, because sometimes we read these things For instance, we'll read Numbers 11, we'll read those verses of Scripture, and we'll read the history of the children of Israel, and we'll think, you know, I know I've said this before, man, how could those people doubt God? You know, they saw the Red Sea split, they saw the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, they saw all this stuff. How could they just continually be in unbelief? And and we see that, that on one day, God would cause the earth to open up and swallow hundreds of them. And the very next day, they're murmuring, complaining. And the Bible says, God did all these things, and still their hearts were even more hard than they were before. Sometimes we read these uh, accounts in the Scripture, and, and from afar, looking back, we say, man, I wouldn't do that. Man, I wouldn't be that. Man, I wouldn't have that attitude. But the reality is, my attitude toward my wife A wife's attitude toward her husband, a child's attitude toward their parent, a parent's attitude toward their child, an attitude toward your brother, toward your sister, toward somebody, a co-worker. We do the very same things. Because remember, husband, you're to be Christ to your wife. So when you murmur and complain against your wife, what you're really doing is despising her. And in despising her, you're despising God. Wives, that husband is your head. And when you murmur and complain against your husband, you're despising him. And in despising him, you're despising Christ. And we don't think in terms like that. We don't don't think about things like that. But that's exactly what God was saying to the children of Israel. You're murmuring because you don't have meat to eat. All you have is this angel's food, bread from heaven. We want some meat. Well, God says, you despise me. Whether you realize it or not, you despise me. And that comes from a heart of unbelief, an unfaithful heart. And God doesn't want us to have unfaithful hearts. He doesn't want us to have hearts of unbelief. And that heart of unbelief and that unfaithful heart is not just concerning what we think about the scripture or the Sunday school lesson or the sermon 
or our two hours at church on Sunday morning, that heart of unbelief has everything to do with how we love our husbands and how we love our wives and how we love our children and how we love our parents and how we love one another. And there's a direct correlation and we can't separate it because there is no separation. And this is what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians. I use, use Ephesians as one of the scriptures that I take couples through when I do premarital counseling. We go in depth, verse by verse, through uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and we look at that. And what Paul is doing is Paul is giving us commentary on what the Old Testament scriptures were declaring. Not just good practical information about marriage, but he said this is a picture of Christ in the church. Husbands and wives, you are a picture of Christ in the church. Brothers and sisters, we are a picture of Christ in the church. And so the dynamic that exists in our relationship with one another, whether we're married or whether we just come to church together on Sunday mornings or whatever that may be, if we are in Christ, the dynamic of that relationship is a picture of a witness to the world. And not just to the world, not just to human beings, but Ephesians 3.10 says that it was God, the, it was God who chose for the church to declare to powers and principalities in heavenly places the manifold wisdom of God. In our life here, not just as married couples, but as the body of Christ, as the family of God, our life here is a witness to the heavenlies. And so, how we live with one another in relationship with one another is very, very important. It has eternal implications. It is, in and of itself, a declaration of the gospel. And it will either be a declaration of the true gospel or it will be a declaration of another gospel. Let it be the true. Amen? So obstacles are not overcome until they're first overcome in our hearts and our minds. You know why the children of Israel could not enter the promised land? Not because they could not physically overcome the giants, but because in their hearts and their minds they could not overcome them. And CFC moves forward in this coming year. We have to move forward together with one heart and one mind. Before the children of Israel could overcome the obstacles in the land of promise, they had to overcome them in their hearts and in their minds through faith in God. And that was the problem. They didn't have faith. They were in unbelief. The murmuring and complaining of the children of Israel began in their hearts and in their minds. And the end of it had to come from where it began. It had to come. You hear what I'm saying? Their, their belief that they could not overcome in the land that God gave them, that, that belief or that unbelief began in their heart and their mind. Their murmuring, complaining against God and against one another, it began in their heart and in their mind. And it had to come and it must come to an end from the very same place that it began, and that is within them. And it's the same for us. A husband is not going to love his wife just because the pastor says so, or a wife's not going to love his husband just because a pastor says so, or a child's not going to love a parent, or, or not have bitterness as that parent maybe has provoked that child to anger or has rejected that child. Those things aren't going to happen just because a pastor or a counselor or somebody says you have to do this. It's not going to be until within their heart they will let go of those things, whether they're justified or not. We have to let go of those things from within. It has to start within. So the heart and the mind can be fertile ground for faith leading to victory or murmuring and complaining leading to failure. The heart and the mind can be a fertile ground for unity or division, for acceptance or offense, for love or for fear. Amen? So think about this. The success or the failure of a marriage begins in the heart and mind of each spouse. The unity or division of a people 
begins in the heart and mind of each individual. The ability to overcome adversity starts in the heart and the mind of those overcoming. Unity begins as an attitude of our heart and must become the resolve of our mind. Differences do not cause division, only the offense we take up because of them. You cannot hang something where there is no hook. An offense cannot be taken up unless it has something to hang on. Otherwise, it will harmlessly pass by. There used to be nails in these walls. Well, there still are nails in these walls, but not, in, not sticking out nails. Now, we used to put Christmas garland and wrap lights around the garland, and we used to have these little finish nails or paneling nails that were nailed there to hang the garland on. This was, a, this was many years ago. But I can remember times we'd take the Christmas garland down, and for a period of time we left the nails there because it was just kind of convenient. I wanted to just keep poking holes in the nails. But, but every once in a while when you walk down the aisle, the wall aisle there, you'd catch your clothes on one of those nails. Especially in the wintertime, you know, because that's, you catch it on your sweater, you know. You guys ever caught your sweater on a nail or something and you snag it and it ruins your sweater? Or it ruins your, your shirt, ruins your clothes. And our hearts and our minds are kind of like those walls. The things we get hung up on are the nails creating the hook that take up the offense instead of allowing it to harmlessly pass by. You get the picture? Offenses cannot be taken up if we don't take them up and if we don't allow a hook to remain in us to catch the things that pass by us. Two of the hooks that create probably more offense than than anything, I want to talk briefly about two of them. It's pride and fear. Pride is the hook that creates more offense than any other, I believe. Pride is defensive. It will not remove its walls. Now, man, we could just park right there and talk about that. I mean, as I, as I even say those words, pride is defensive, it will not remove its walls. Some of you think about the dynamics of relationships you're in, your marriage, parents with your children, maybe on the job with a coworker, or your employer, or maybe your employee. A neighbor, I don't know. I remember growing up, we had a neighbor. Um, I, I grew up in the house that I lived in all my life until I moved away from Victoria. And um, we always had really good neighbors. Um, I kind of came along late, and so the neighbors that were there when I was born, they, they were older, and their kids had already grown up. And, and they got old, and... I don't know what happened to them. They moved away, and, and these new people moved in. And man, this lady was, she was one of these persons that was going to find something wrong just because. That's how she lived her life. And we'd always gotten along great with our neighbors, and, and it just became an unworkable situation. And, you know, we lived in town, and so their driveway went up the side of our house, and then their garage was kind of around, and so uh, our bedrooms were on that end, and so they had teenage kids, and so they'd throw trash in our yard, and they'd shine the lights in the bedroom late at night and everything, and, of course, now my mom was like a yard freak. I mean, people used to stop and ask if they could tour her yard because it was just that kind of place, you know. And so my mom just decided, you know what, I'm just, we're just going to put a fence up, you know. Then I don't have to worry about the trash getting thrown there and the lights being shined into our bedroom windows. And so my mom and dad decided to put a fence up. And so they called the fence company out, and guys are out there, and they're digging holes, and boy, this lady comes out. 
And I mean, she just stops them, just causes a huge stink. Long story short, we, we put the fence up, but it was a fight. There was no reason why we couldn't put the fence up. We, you know, she wasn't happy until my mom agreed and my dad agreed to move the fence over like a foot. She didn't want it that close to the property line. It's like, it's on our property. It's like, my mom was like, look, just, you know, forget it. Move it over. It's kind of funny, the guy building a fence told us that. He said, you know, I know her. This happened before. He said, you'd think she'd learn her lesson. He said, the last time I did this, and she demanded that they resurvey it, they found out that the property line actually went down the middle of her driveway, and he said, the people actually put the fence down the middle of her driveway. <laughs> she caused so much trouble <laughs> that it's like, okay, you want to play that way? They, they didn't realize, and she demanded that they resurvey that the property line wasn't right, that you're building that fence on my property. Well, she probably wished she'd have kept her mouth shut. It, it was a huge, my mom took great offense to that. And, and it, it was a long time before, <laughs> before my mom was able to get over that. I mean, oof, it, was, it was just not good. Of course, you know, we didn't grow up in church, and I wasn't saved, and we all thought she was, you know, evil and, and everything. And, you know, I look back on that now, and I wonder, what, you know, what in the world, what was the deal with this lady? You know, you just wonder, what makes people like that? You know, why was she so unworkable? Why was she so mean? Why, you know, who knows? But, but offenses, even in a situation like that, you know, my mom didn't have to take that offense up and hold on to that, but she did. For a long time. She finally got over it, you know. But, but oftentimes, we take offenses that aren't anywhere close to that. I hear stories. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a couple call me this week out of the blue. They don't, they don't even live in this town. And they called me because CPS demanded that they get some counseling, and they were just going down trying to find a church that would agree to talk with them. And I said, sure, come on, I'll talk with you. And, you know, you just sit there and you listen to, these are young people, and you sit there and you listen to their story, and it just breaks your heart. And you wonder, how can parents, you know, both of them came from extreme abuse. No wonder, you know, we struggle. These things are cycles that will not be broken until, until we break them. And you just see the brokenness in people. The offense, you know, why doesn't my mother love me? Why did my dad abandon me? Why do I feel so compelled to prove myself to him and nothing's good enough, nothing's good enough? And you just see not only the offense, but you see just the pain and the hurt. But I told... I told that couple, like I tell all couples, and like I tell all people, and like I remind us here today, myself included, even if, my friend Herman Reich just say, even if it is true, even if your mother was horrible, even if your father was horrible, even if your husband's a louse, even if your wife isn't the wife she should be, even if your children are rebellious, even if it is true, whether we take up and carry that offense is our choice. How we deal with those things is our choice. And so pride is defensive. It will not remove its walls. Pride is closed. It will not open to the new or let go of the past. Even if it kills me. I'm going to hold on to this offense because, because of the way this person was. Because they didn't love me. Because they treated me a certain way. Because they did a certain thing. Because they didn't do a certain thing. And that offense that they refuse to let go of is literally eating them alive. But because they're justified in their offense, this is pride. I don't have to let it go because they really were 
wrong. Well, they might have been wrong, but the only person you're destroying right now is yourself because in your pride, you won't just let it go. Pride opposes repentance. It will resist a change of mind and a change of heart. Pride assumes there is no other way. Pride opposes faith. Because pride demands control while faith demands what? Surrender. I had someone tell me last week, and they were talking about the situation on on their job. And they said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that some people just live to complain. I said, well, that's true everywhere. That's not just true in the workplace. That's true in the church. That's true in our families. I mean, can you all think of people in your family that just like to complain? I mean, we've all got one somewhere, right? They said, you know, I've just come to the conclusion that, that, that just people, that's, that's what they thrive on. That's the food they eat. That's how they, they make it. And that's, that's true for some people, but, but it shouldn't be true for the child of God. Amen? It shouldn't be. Fear. Fear is a reaction to what we do not know, what we do not understand, and what we do not control. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. They say, scientists have, have discovered, supposedly, I don't know if this is true or not, but they, they call it the roller coaster gene. You guys ever heard this? That there are some people that have a gene in their body that that makes them crave roller coasters, thrill seekers. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have that gene. Okay? I love to go to Six Flags. I especially love Fiesta, Texas, because I love the water park, right? But I do not like the roller coasters. You know why I don't like the roller coasters? Because here's my, here's, here's my thinking. My thinking is they put me in this little car on this little track, got these loop-de-loops, goes really fast, it goes really high, and I have this seatbelt or maybe this bar that comes down over me, and at that point in time, I have absolutely zero control over what happens after that. And if that baby flies off the track, I'm strapped in there and there's not a thing I can do about it. Well, I just don't like the thought of that. Now, I, I don't fear driving in my car at all. I don't fear driving 80 miles an hour, three feet away from the car coming opposite me at 80 miles an hour. I, I, I don't even think about it. You know why? Because I'm in control of the wheel. Because I'm in control. You know what? It's really just an illusion. It's a myth in my mind. Because the reality is, as much as I might be in control... I'm certainly not in control of that car coming at me 80 miles an hour from the opposite direction, am I? But I don't think about that. Fear is reactive. It reacts to what it doesn't control, or think it doesn't control, doesn't understand, doesn't know. It's rooted in ignorance. Fear is insecure. It fights to justify the status quo even when the status quo is not justifiable. You ever had parents, you've ever had your kids ask you, but daddy, why? Why, daddy? Just because. But, but why? Well, just because. Then later on, after you shoo them on, you think, well, now, I wonder why. Have you ever thought about that? Don't fight to maintain the status quo when it's not justifiable. 
fear stifles growth. The children of Israel had to wait 40 years to go into the promised land because of fear. It's an evil gatekeeper depriving those it holds captive. Fear feigns wisdom. It might sound really wise as I, and I've, <laughs> I've done this before too, gone to the Six Flags with the youth group. Come on, Pastor Jeff, ride the roller coaster with us. Why won't you ride? Well, you know, if that roller coaster came off the tracks, and I'm trying to explain to them, why, you know, you know, it may sound like wisdom, but it's, it's really not. It's just fear. <laughs> it's irrational. It's irrational fear is all it is. But it's very rational to me. But in reality, it's only rational in my mind. It's really not a rational fear. It's an irrational fear. By the way, if we ever go to Six Flags together, I'm still not going to ride the roller coaster in spite of I know it's an irrational fear. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to ride it. But fear feigns wisdom. It seeks a rationale, but in reality, it's void of faith. Fear is void of faith. When I was in sales, I remember I had a sales manager tell me one time, he said, you know, most salesmen fear success more than they fear failure. I had to think about that for a while. I think sometimes we fear success more than we fear failure. As I sit and listen to a spouse in an abused relationship justify why she will remain in that relationship, it doesn't make sense to me. But something in her mind tells her that this is the way it has to be. Because they can't see anything outside of that reality. Because somewhere, they don't believe they deserve anything better. Many years ago, I had a member of my youth group. And I'll just be honest with you, I did everything I could to talk her, into out of mar- talk her out of marrying the guy that she was going to marry. To the point that it was three days before the ceremony, and I literally begged her to not marry this guy. Because he had already demonstrated by the bruises on her body that abuse just came natural to him. And her response was, it's too late. I can't go back now. I've already printed the invitations. The wedding is Saturday. It's too late. I said, no, it's not too late. I realize now that in her mind, this is what she had to do because this is what she felt like. This was her only option. She didn't see herself having someone that that could really value her the way she needed to be valued. It was not long after that, maybe within two years, her husband put her in the hospital and brought her that close to death. He went to prison. Obviously, they were not together anymore. I tell people, you know, I could pretend to be a prophet, and you would think I am a prophet, but it's not that I'm a prophet. It's that these patterns are not unique. The way we take up offense, the way we refuse to let go of offense, the way we get trapped in patterns of life, the cycles of abuse, the cycles of whatever, it all comes from the fact that there is something that needs to change, not outside of us, but within us, in our heart, and in our mind. But sometimes fear doesn't allow us to entertain the thought that we can change because we just don't believe it could really be what you say it could be. Just like the children of Israel just couldn't believe that it could really be what God said it was to be. They couldn't believe it. They had a slave mentality. They had a mentality of bondage. And do you know that every one of them, except for two, 
that were born in bondage, died in the wilderness. And the, one, the ones that went into the promised land were the ones that were born free, that were born not in slavery, not in bondage in Egypt, but in the wilderness. And that, that demonstrates something, I think, very graphically. I mean, a generation really had to die in the wilderness. And I'm going to tell you, you really need to die to get out of that mentality. This is what Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that death, what needs to die is, it is the attitudes of our heart. It is the strongholds of our mind that hold us captive, whether it's pride, whether it's fear, doesn't matter what it is. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7. Let's look at this. As you're turning to Mark chapter 7, I'm going to quote Matthew 15, 12. It's the same account of Scripture, but we're going to look at it out of Mark because he, he, he fleshes it out just a little bit more than Matthew's gospel does. But Matthew 15, 12 says, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, let me read Mark 7, 1 to you. I'll read a little bit. I'm not, I won't read all 23 verses, but you'll get the gist of what's happening here. Mark 7, verse one, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. That's an important term there, the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they receive and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, or that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no such effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. Here's kind of the picture. Here they're railing on Jesus. They're offended because Jesus didn't, and his disciples didn't wash their hands the way the tradition of the elders said that they should. Jesus said, you hold the tradition of the elders, but you ignore the commandment of God. And he uses this example of honor your father and mother. And so a child was supposed to take care of their parents, right? But the Pharisees found a loophole. They created a loophole. And they said, well, we tell you what. If you will just say what you have is a gift to God, then you don't have to give it to your parents. Just like they said, you can swear by the temple and you're not bound by your oath. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, well, that binds you. So if you're going to make an oath and you want to get out of it, in other words, if you want to lie and be able to lie legally, just swear by the temple. Sounds really good, but it means absolutely nothing. 
Jesus said, you hypocrites. And they were offended. And he goes on, skip down with me to, skip down with me to verse 20. Jesus said, what comes out of a man, that defiles him. They said, you're defiled, Jesus, and because you eat with unwashed hands, so the food you eat has defiled you. Jesus says, no, what goes into a man does not defile him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. What comes out of a man, that defiles him. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. When Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out, this is what offended the Pharisees. Because Jesus was directly challenging them and their traditions that they had made as law. And he says, it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. And Jesus begins to talk about not the physical issues of the body, but the issues of the heart. They weren't defiled because they did or didn't wash their hands. They were defiled because what was in their heart was wicked. And what was in their heart determined what was coming out of them, just like it did for the children of Israel. What was in their heart came out. It was unbelief. It was unfaithfulness. It was, the, it was a despising of God because God brought them to this wilderness and didn't do exactly the way they thought God should do. So these Pharisees suffered from pride, and they suffered from fear. They were puffed up in pride at the traditions they had developed, even putting more value on them than the Scripture itself. If you read the Talmud, if you read the the Mishnah, if you read the writings of the rabbis, do you know that the rabbis put more weight on the traditions than they do the Scriptures themselves? You can read it. This is what Jesus was dealing with. Their pride blinded them as they taught as doctrines the commandments of men while laying aside the commandments in the Word of God. They were fearful of Jesus because He came preaching the truth of God that would ultimately bring down and not only, not only their traditions, but the whole system that they had built. Now, we're talking about this in a spiritual context, but, but I want you to think about it not just in a spiritual context. I want you to think about it in terms of, of our lives, our, of our personal lives. What have you built in your family? What have you built in your relationships? What have you built in your work, in your career? What have you built between your husband and your wife, between your, your children, parents? Children, what are you building between you and your parents? Brothers and sisters, what are we building with each other? Is it honoring God or is it a system that we've built up that's more self-serving than it is God-honoring? They were fearful because they could not see the fulfillment that was the work of Christ, but only the emptying of what they had established through their own work. This was their attitude. If we let Jesus keep going, he's going to destroy everything we have established. That's exactly what they believed. And you know what? (laughs) They were right. They just thought that through crucifying him, they'd be done with him. Little did they know that by crucifying him, they brought to pass exactly what he wanted to have happen. In their pride and fear, they took up an offense against Jesus that they would not let go. Now, we suffer also from pride and fear. I know I do. I'm not going to speak for you guys, but I know I do. Why? Because we're human. And because we're human, we're not immune to these things. But if we are redeemed, we have been given victory over both pride and fear. Amen? 
The question is whether we will exercise that victory in the face of our real pride and our real fear. It is our pride and it is in our pride and it's in our fear that we take up offenses and refuse to let them go. I want you to think of a person in your past or maybe right now in your present. You took up an offense against that you still struggle to release. Whether or not you are justified, uh, that, that's pointless. They may have really hurt you. They may have really harmed you. Justified or not, is pride or fear are both keeping you from releasing that offense. And trusting that God will deal with the person who committed it. I see this a lot in, in, in estranged families where there is still this bitterness held toward. And you know who's usually caught in the middle? It's usually the children caught in the middle between a bitter father and a bitter mother. And it's selfishness that will not allow the parents to let go of that for the benefit of the children. And if they could have lived selflessly to begin with, they probably wouldn't even be split right now. Maybe, maybe not. We have no control over what that other person does, but we have absolute control over how we will react and handle those situations for the glory of God. So it could be, could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a neighbor, family member. You know what? It may be God that you're offended with. Have you ever been offended at God? It's okay. If you have, He knows. <laughs> Freedom from offenses must come from within you. It has to come from your heart and from your mind. It has to begin there because that's where the offense begins. So that's where the freedom and the healing has to begin. When we murmur and complain, listen, when we murmur and complain in our offense, we are fertilizing the seeds of bitterness and unforgiveness that will eventually produce a harvest of death and destruction. This is, what's, this is what happens in a lot of marriages. There is this continuing of complaining and murmuring And that usually will end up producing a harvest of destruction for that relationship. A spouse refuses to deal with their offenses and the murmuring and complaining eventually leads to the destruction and death of the relationship. And families, parents, and or children take up offenses and the murmuring and complaining will eventually escalate into divisions that become difficult to heal. In the church, people take up offenses and then murmur, complain, and gossip to others instead of speaking the truth and love to the person directly involved. Now, I'm not so naive to think that all of you love me dearly. You may love me dearly. Maybe you've got problems with me. I really do welcome you to come. Come to me and talk to me about the problems you have with me. You might, you might set me free. I might not even know I have a problem. I mean, really and truly. I mean, I used to think I didn't have any problems. I was perfect, and my wife began to teach me differently. And I'm a much better person now because of her instruction. Now, I'm being facetious, but in reality, I'm, I'm being true also. You know, you've, you've heard this question, you know, why are river rocks so smooth? Because they, they live in an environment where they bump against each other all the time and they knock all the rough edges off. So you go to Garner State Park, one of my most favorite places. You can get in the river and there's these beautiful, smooth, rounded river rock. Go up on the beach just a few feet and they're not so smooth and rounded. Listen, God knew what he was doing when he put all of us together. When he put you with your wife, you with your husband, parents, children, Children, God knew what he was doing when he caused you to be born to your parents. Trust that God knows how to knock all of the rough edges off to make us what he ultimately wants us to be. Don't resist that. Embrace that. Where do these things come from? 
Jesus said all these evil things come from within and defile a man. The solution to pride is humility, and the solution to fear is love. James and Peter both say, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter's epistle says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due season. First John says, fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love, for love casts out all fear. The solution to pride is humility, the solution to fear is love, and God is the source of both. In Christ we have new hearts and we have the power of the Spirit to be transformed as we renew our minds in the truth with humility and love, no longer defiled by the things that come from within. Amen? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to leave you with this scripture. Therefore, brethren, I beg you, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Instead of trying to figure out how you're going to forgive your husband, your wife, your sister, your brother, your mother, your father, your third cousin that did you wrong when you were 10 years old, whatever. Instead of trying to figure out how you're going to finally get free of that, listen, begin to renew your mind in the Word of God. Begin to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Begin to stare into the very image of Christ and you will find yourself being transformed into the very same image. And God, through the power of His Spirit, as He transforms you on the inside, He will, in His grace and in His power, enable you to be shed of those things that have been hooked all over you. That are the offenses and the hurts and the scars and the pain that you still embrace. God says, be free of it. But you can only be free as you allow Him to give you a new heart through Christ and renew your mind by the power of the Spirit as you wash that mind with the water of the Word. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, that reminds me. I have your visitation flyers. Father, we ask that you would do a work in us individually and corporately by your Spirit. Lord, you have brought us all to this place. Lord, you've caused some of us to be born in Taylor. You've brought others of us from near and far. And you've planted us here. Lord, we're all here in this building we call Christ Fellowship today. And we all have come to worship together under that banner. As we are known as Christ Fellowship Church part of the body of Christ. Lord, we may have come here today by our choosing, but it was not apart from your divine providence, as many of us can testify to. Father, there are great opportunities ahead of us as a congregation. There are great opportunities that exist in this city. And Lord, I believe that you have put us in this city. You have established this congregation called Christ Fellowship to be a part of what you have chosen to do in this city we call Taylor and the surrounding areas. And Father, I pray that you would help us begin to see beyond ourselves, that you would help us begin to see beyond our hurts, that you would deliver us from our pride and from our fear, that, Lord, you would begin, even if it means that you're going to use the ones next to us to knock off the hooks and the rough edges that 
cause the offenses to hang on. God, that we would begin to see a bigger picture, a more glorious picture than what we've seen in the past. That we would begin to see, God, that you are the one. You are writing this story. You are painting this picture. And we are here because you've chosen for us to be here. And we play our part because you've chosen for us to play this part. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in your love. And even in the pain and even in the discomfort and even in the awkwardness that exists sometimes, help us, God, to embrace one another. Help us, God, to love one another out of the love that you have loved us with. Help us, God, to see beyond one another and help us to see the glorious plan and purpose that you have designed for us as Christ Fellowship Church in the city called Taylor. Help us, God, to see that and to begin to comprehend that in a deeper measure than we ever have before. Help us, God, have the right attitude of heart and the right resolve of mind that we will let no force on earth or in hell bring division that would disrupt and tarnish your glory for your body that you and your grace has made us a part of. For that, we are thankful. We ask for your eternal help as you have promised it to us by your Spirit. And we thank you that you have given us that promise and that guarantee as an assurance that your will shall be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And we thank you for it, Father, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Come on, give the Lord.